You may be seated. I titled the sermon this morning, uh, Happy New Year, Happy New Vision. The reason we sang, Be Thou My Vision, as our opening song. Interestingly, when we sing that song, uh, we should remember a couple of things. It is a prayer. As are many of the songs of Israel, which we call the Psalms. Many of them are prayers too. Uh, we, we say the old English words, uh, the Elizabethan English words in, in our psalm, Be thou my vision, but it's, it's you. We're singing to you, Lord. We need to remember he is here with us. And whenever we're singing a song that you pick up is addressed to him, Think of him that you are singing to instead of to one another. Or just singing a song as part of a service. It's a remarkable experience that we really control by our inside thoughts and recognition of when a song is using the second person uh, singular, you, to address God. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an, a, a wonderful song uh, also because when it says, you be my vision, Lord, uh, the word vision can have two meanings. Uh, some parts of the Christian church talk about a beatific vision to catch sight of God or an angel a very holy vision that, that we see. But the word, so we can think of, of, of a, a picture of Jesus in our mind, even though we have no photos, no paintings of Jesus that were done around the early times, but we can still try to picture uh, Christ in our, in our minds as, as a vision to us. Uh, the second part of a vision, though, is is a, a, a mission for our lives. Uh, companies sometimes have a mission statement, a vision statement, who we are and what our purpose is, what we hope to accomplish. That's a vision that we have. So those are two interpretations of the word vision that are both very helpful in that hymn. Um, a vision helps us think about the fact that we have begun a new year. And uh, even though it's the 16th and everybody's forgotten about New Year's already, it, it still is important for us to remember that uh, a new year is a helpful prompt to look at our lives and think, what can be new this year? Uh, will time just go on and be the same as it was last year? Uh, there are surprises, of course, uh, that we have that we don't plan on, didn't wish to plan on, or are pleased to, to find a surprise that's good. But we still should think ahead in our lives and say, what's, what's old and what, what would I like to be new in my life? And to not just think about that, but better yet, 
to talk about it. Uh, if it's just you, put some things on a paper and make a commitment to yourself to do something. Uh, if it's you and a spouse or you and a family, why not talk about that with one another and even uh, make some commitments together. Say, let's do that. Don't be goofy uh, or you'll just toss them like a lot of people do with uh, New Year's resolutions. But uh, Christ is our vision and he calls to give us a vision in our lives. Um, another title for this sermon could have been Nazareth or Capernaum. Those are two towns in the Gospels, in the four Gospels. They are, they, they were, maybe still are, uh, maybe with different names today, two, two locations, two specific spots in the Galilee portion of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. And so they were two towns, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and Capernaum, where much of his ministry was centered. Nazareth or Capernaum, for they were very different in their response to Christ. And one of them looked back and one of them looked forward. So we're going to read about them, but first let's ask God to give us understanding for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, loving us and speaking to us. Uh, we thank you that you are patient with us as we, as we appreciate the benefit and employ uh, the, the great benefits of reading your words and listening to them and talking about them together and building them into our lives. We thank you for your word, but we also know that we need your spirit to help us understand what you have caused to be written what you have spoken. So we ask for that every time that we read your word together or alone. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our sermon text then is taken from Luke 4, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And if you have come a few times before when I've been preaching, you know I tend to, both Tyler and I tend to slip in a little more Sir, uh, scripture than, than what the sermon text is. But we'll start with this. And uh, I'm going to read it straight through. Uh, it's five different slides, and then we'll go back and talk a little bit about it and see what the lesson we can draw out of this uh, really a wonderful story, a very important story. Um, a great commentator that I mentioned to you before, James Edwards in his commentary on Luke, says this was Jesus' keynote speech beginning his ministry. So let us listen to God's word. Chapter 4 of Luke, verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. 
he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, quote, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Period. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Now let's go back and see each of these portions again and understand what's behind it, what we're reading. We begin again with verse 14. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. Well, first of all, when, when we have the then Jesus, we should always say, well, what just happened before this? And this is very important. Luke has placed this story, which is also found in Mark, the first of the four Gospels to be written, found in Mark and found in Matthew. But in Mark and Matthew, this story is placed by them right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 6 for Mark, who only has 16 chapters. Chapter 13 for Matthew, who has 28 chapters. Both of them place this in the middle. Luke moved this story up to the front of Jesus' ministry. It takes place right after chapter 3, which is about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It it begins, uh, the stories begin with uh, Jesus' birth, uh, then his baptism, and then going into the wilderness to be tempted, and then on into his ministry from there. So Matthew and Mark have much, much of Jesus' ministry before he comes back to Nazareth. But Luke decides to place that story first. <clears throat> he lets us know in the story that Jesus has already been to other synagogues. You'll see this in a minute. But he intentionally wants to place this story up at the front because it contains that wonderful quote from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And what he quotes from that. And it, it, it paints for us the gospel. What Jesus was sent by the Father to do. Why God the Son became flesh and lived among us full of grace and truth. Here's what he is planning to do. Five things. We'll see him in a second. It says, he was in the power of the Spirit. Jesus had just finished 40 days in the wilderness. He did not crawl into Nazareth, barely able to make it, hungry, famished, thirsty, weak, hardly able to speak after 40 days in the wilderness, fasting, 
miraculously. He came in power. And it was the power of the Spirit who was in him. The power of the Spirit came upon him at his baptism. Even with the symbol of a dove lighting upon him for that instant. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. He was there in power. He comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. He returns to Galilee and a report about him spread through all the country. And he began to teach in their synagogues. It was very common for Jesus to do that. We have the ruins of archaeological sites and ruins of a half a dozen of the synagogues, including the one at Nazareth today. We have the synagogue at Capernaum, which is the most beautiful historic archaeological uh, discovery of an almost intact synagogue from the Actually, that's from the 4th century that that one was built. But the base of it is still what was there that Jesus walked on in Capernaum today. We have a number of those synagogue ruins available to archaeologists and others to see. It was very... Uh, 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 one of the other things that Edwards pointed out that I did not, was not aware of this is the earliest explanation of a synagogue worship service in history. There were none in the Hebrew scriptures, none in the Hebrew literature, uh, none in other forms of literature. Here in Luke's gospel was the first description of what a synagogue service was like. And much of the pattern continues today in modern synagogues. Uh, the scriptures are foremost up in the front of the synagogue in a big cupboard. An attendant, sometimes called the ruler of the synagogue, an administrator of the synagogue, hands a, hands a scroll to someone who is to read. It might be a rabbi. In Jesus' day, they did not have a rabbi for every synagogue. It was a layperson handed the scroll to them. Jesus picks the place he chooses to read from Isaiah. He picks the prophet Isaiah. He unrolls it and finds the place where it was written. Isaiah 61 is connected with uh, Isaiah 53, being the servant, uh, the servant Messiah passages of Isaiah. And Jesus reads this one. He uh, unrolls it and begins reading. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me uh, to bring good news to the poor. Well, when you see the word anointed, you should automatically connect that to Messiah and Christ. Meshua in Hebrew from which we get our Englishized Messiah, was a translation of the word anointed. A king was anointed when a king began to rule. Others were anointed for certain purposes. The Messiah was the ultimate 
anointed one of God to be king, priest, and prophet for all of Israel in salvation history. He goes on to say, he has sent me. So there are two verbs in this passage in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He has anointed me and he has sent me. To be sent is the word mission out of Latin and into English. To be sent is the word mission. The mission work of a congregation today is still to be sent. It's not things they do for themselves. It's things they, go, they do when they go outside of themselves. We're sent to the community around us. We're sent across barriers, divides, geographic, uh, economic, uh, cultural, educational. There's lots of divides for people besides geography. We're sent. The gospel is sent. Jesus was sent, and he sent his apostles. He continues to send us. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. So good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, let the oppressed go free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor is grace in Hebrew and Greek and English. Favor is God's grace it's mercy, it's forgiveness, all of that. We read those things, the poor, the captives, the blind. We, by default, always think of the physical instead of the spiritual. What, Paul, what Jesus first and what Paul amplified was that we are all the poor. We're all captives. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. These things describe all of us, not a few of us. The good news was for everyone, not just some. These are amazing words. Then he rolled up the scripture, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He didn't sit down because he wasn't going to talk about it. That was the pattern. You stood up to read the scripture. You sat to preach the sermon. In essence, this is one of the first sermons that Jesus preached. One of the few that we have that were in a synagogue. He sat down and their eyes were still on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, right here, this scripture has been fulfilled in your own hearing. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uses the word scripture only twice. Here in this fourth chapter, there in Nazareth. And the second time was in the upper room after his resurrection and he had appeared to the disciples and he opened the scriptures for them and showed them everywhere the scriptures, the Old Testament, talked about him. Two places that Jesus used the word scripture that we have in, the, in Luke. Well, 
What was the response of the people in Nazareth? And what about the people of Capernaum? We haven't even mentioned them yet. Not in these verses that I read. So we need to look at a little more to see what the response of the people in Nazareth was and what further, what more did Jesus say to them? So we're putting up another slide now which begins with verse 22 of chapter 4. All spoke well of him. Interesting. And were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? So they thought well of him. They spoke well of him. Well, that was, that was a wonderful reading or something. And they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Were they amazed because they'd never heard him utter anything like that in the years that he grew up there? This was a different Jesus than the one that left them earlier to go down and be with John the Baptist by the Jordan River and to be baptized himself. He came back from the Jordan different in their eyes. He had not evidently preached in a synagogue before. So they were saying, wow, that's pretty good. Didn't expect that from him <laughs> or something. They considered them gracious words. But the next line gives away a little problem. Isn't this Joseph's son? Um, interestingly, uh, both Matthew and uh, Mark have that same uh, that same reply, and uh, and in Mark's version, which Matthew follows very closely, it says, they said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon four brothers both Mark and Matthew name and after the brothers they say and are not his sisters here with us they ask about this because he is so different. He is someone that they didn't see before. They knew him growing up. They still are seeing him as a young child, a teenager, a very young man. And they see him in the past. They look backward instead of looking forward. So Jesus replies to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we've heard you did at Capernaum. 
So Luke acknowledges that he has been other places, that he chose to put this story up front. Those were common sayings in Israel in those days. Doctor, cure yourself. Probably when someone wanted to help them with a problem they had. You know, when you share, when we share, somebody said, well, now I, I was looking on the internet, and I found if you get this stuff, it'll really work good. And but hey, take care of yourself. I'll drive in your lane, I'll drive in my lane. Do here also in your hometown the things we've heard you did at Capernaum. Do some tricks for us. None of them came to him seeking help. None of them could turn to him because they grew up with him. They could only look back. Unlike other places, they looked back and they were captive of their past. They could not be in the present with Jesus and they could not, they could not go forward with Jesus. So it continues. Verse 24, and he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the, heavens, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was severe famine over the land. There was no rain for three years and more. And of course, there was famine in the land in the time of Elijah. And Jesus goes on to say, yet... Elijah was sent to none of them in Israel. But he was, a cynic. he was sent instead to a widow of Zarephath in Sidon. That's up in Lebanon. The widow of Zarephath was not a Jew, not a child of Israel. She was a despised Gentile. Jesus continues. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard this, all the synagogue were filled with rage. Both the widow and Naaman the leper were Gentiles. And the prophets of Israel were sent to none of the people in Israel. But as a judgment upon them, they were sent to Gentiles. And the fact of the matter is that God's love has always included both Jew and Gentile. The Jews lost sight of that in the time of Jesus and earlier. They despised and avoided, ridiculed all Gentiles. Anyone, not a Jew, would not touch them, would cross the street to get away from them, would never eat in their home. It was a hard and fast rule for century after century. Even though the great promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was to include all the nations of the earth. Here again, Jesus is pointing out to them that the mission of God has always been to the whole world. And they have been off track. And they are still off track in the presence of Jesus because they react with rage. 
So what happens? They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. His way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said. It's his way. The people of Nazareth would not receive him, nor would they receive his way. They rejected his message, and they tried to kill the messenger. They led him to a brow of a hill, and Nazareth is on a slope. They led him to a place that a person would be injured if they were pushed over, and that was their intent. And once incapacitated, they would have finished him with stoning. The next slide says, he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. And the response of Capernaum follows after that with one incident after another. And the calling of the first four disciples, apostles of Jesus, Peter and Andrew, James and John, from their fishing boats of the Sea of Galilee. They were Capernaums. And others from the Capernaum area, one miracle after another, those in Capernaum received the messenger and received the, the message that he had. The people of Capernaum saw Jesus for who he was in the present and in the future. The people of Nazareth saw Jesus for what he was in their past. The people of Nazareth rejected the vision and the mission of the Messiah, the Christ, God incarnate, because he grew up in their village. They had grown up with him, and they couldn't leave their past. They could only look backwards. The people of Capernaum received the vision and mission of the Messiah Christ, because they met him when he was fulfilling his mission with remarkable words and marvelous deeds, works. What about us? Are we going to continue in the new year with little change from the past? We are creatures of habit. We ride back to the known instead of the unknown is our preference. It's our comfort zone. We have to push against it to grow. We have to go from riding a tricycle to the struggle of trying to balance on two wheels. Oh, I can't do it. Well, I'll walk with you. I'll run with you. We struggle to do the new, the more difficult. But it opens up new life for us to grow. Will we cling to the past or will we take a fresh look and let Christ be who he really can be for us? It's always our challenge, really. But the new year, uh, seeing some changes in terms of the pandemic, the possibilities of restoring a greater fullness of our being able to be together, this is going to be a new year. And how can we together think about new things for us. 
First of all, we should all start with ourselves individually. Take time. Be serious about it. Reflect on the past, honestly. What's new for you now? What, what would you like to correct? What would you like to grow in? What would you like to read? What do you need to do? And not just think about it, as I said earlier. Write something. Talk about it. Spouses should really talk together about going forward. Too often we don't talk, we just stay busy, and we just try to manage our schedules. So important to carve out time and reflect where we've been and where we need to go. We should also do that as brothers and sisters. By by the way, not only spouses should do that, but as I said to the children, even as young as they are, start including your children with thinking and thinking ahead and talking about past and future, new, new abilities. Help them to talk about it and not just things happen. Teach them to be thinkers, reflectors, and especially readers of the one who wants to give them guidance and be the light. Sweet that she said, I just read the stories of Jesus, you know, at Christmas. Keep her reading. Keep our children reading beyond the Christmas stories. Keep reading as adults on our own and not just here at worship. But we as brothers and sisters need to take a fresh look at being the church here at Peak and Fry. It's always an opportunity to grow. Never just stay status quo. Be thou my vision. They could not let him be who he truly was. They kept him as something different. That's an important thing for all of us. This is a powerful story for every individual Christian. Are we riding on the past or are we growing in Christ? Can any of us say that we have no more room to grow? (laughs) Of course we can. Don't be anything else to me, Lord, except all that you really are. I believe it can be, and I believe it will be, a new year for you, for your family, and for this congregation, together in Christ. Amen.